0: At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you have been at Wildwood the last, um, you know, several weeks, you know that we've been walking through a series called The Why's of Worship. Why do we gather? Why do we sing when we gather? Why do we baptize? Baptism Sunday is just a couple of weeks. Why do we have communion? At the end of our service today, we'll celebrate communion together. Why do we pray? Why do we have a sermon? Why, why do we take up an offering? If you've ever had those questions, uh, know that the answer is not just because we have to kill an hour. Uh, The answer is because there's purpose in all that we do as an act and opportunity for us to worship God and encourage one another to follow him. Today we're going to continue this series as we are in part six talking about why do we have a sermon. And I know as I put that on the screen, some of you are going, that's right, we've been asking that question of you for years, Pastor Mark, why do you talk so long? Well, today, hopefully, we will shed some light on this topic and really and truly not just talk about the sermon, but talk about what is at the heart of the sermon. At the heart of the sermon is the Word of God. And so today, hopefully, as we dive into this topic together, we will learn something more about God's Word, and we will turn to it uh, for our direction in life. But before we get there, I want to just reflect with you for a moment about an experience that many of us have looking for a product that is hard to find. Have you ever been looking for something and you've gone to a store and it's not there? It might be a gift that you are wanting to buy for a somebody for Christmas and you go to the first store and it's not there. Have you ever experienced that? Anybody? If you've experienced that, raise your hand. I just want to see. Okay, many of you have experienced that, uh, myself included. And it, maybe it's not a gift for Christmas. Maybe it's something that you are purchasing to, to cook and you go to the first store and they don't have the right spice. How many of you have ever been looking for something to cook and... Okay, many more generous at Christmas than we have chefs. But we we think about just this experience. Uh, we were used to it, where there is something that we want, something that we need, and we go to the first store and it's not there. Or maybe you've had this experience. How many of you have ever tried to buy enough Gatorade to drown an elephant? Anybody? Okay, like two of us. Perfect, perfect. Um, That was our experience a couple of years ago. Uh, Kimberly and I were volunteering with uh, the local Uh, cross-country team and they are hosting a, a large 5k in town and we were responsible for purchasing the Gatorade that would be consumed at the race and I just assumed that Walmart had all of the Gatorade necessary for this event and so we don't go to buy the Gatorade until just a couple of days before the event and when we walked in the west side Walmart we realized that there was not enough Gatorade on the shelves so what did we do? Come on, 945, what do you do? When you go to the Walmart on the west side If there's not enough Gatorade, you go to the Walmart on the east side. So we came to the Walmart on the east side, and it wasn't there either. And so we went to the Walmart on the south side. Wow, we have a lot of Walmarts. And we went and we looked there, and we went to Neighborhood Market, and we went to Target, and we went to Crest. And ultimately, we found enough of the magic powder. Uh, to provide for the event. But we are used to this experience. When we can't find what we need in one location, we often just move on to the next. But what happens if we are looking for something that is only found in one place? And what happens if we're looking for something in the wrong place? I mean, what if you're looking for auto parts at Saks Fifth Avenue? You will never, ever find it. Friends, I share this story with you because when it comes to what we need most in life, direction, hope, life, salvation, peace, we spend a lot of our lives looking for it in many different places. But there's only one place that we can find true life, and that is in Jesus Christ. And we learn about Jesus Christ through the Word of God. Today, when we talk about why do we have a sermon, we have a sermon because we believe there is only one place where we can find what we need for life, and that is in God's Word. And we're going to see this as we look at John chapter 6, verses 66 through 69. So if you've got a Bible, take it there and turn to John chapter 6, beginning in verse 66. Jesus here is interacting with a crowd as well as with the 12 disciples, and this is how it goes. After this, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, friends, in these few verses, we see something about the unique and life-giving power of the Word of God. And I want us to unpack it in in a couple of different movements today as we answer the question, why do we have a sermon? Why do we take so much time to read and study and apply God's Word? Hopefully, after our time today, we'll have a greater understanding of that. So, the first thing I want us to see is this. I want us to see the light producing purpose of the Holy Scriptures. The light producing purpose of the Holy Scriptures. Now, we see this unpack in, in John 6. But in order to really understand John 6, the verses I just read, we need to look at the context. Because at the beginning of John 6, 66, it says, After this. Well, after what? Well, in order to understand that, we need to look back to the beginning of chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible, look back to the beginning of John chapter 6. And right above John 6, 1, in my Bible, there's a little heading. There may be one in yours as well. In the ESV Bible, it says right above John 6, 1, what? Does anybody see it? Want to say it out loud? Yeah, Jesus feeds the 5,000. That's what it says. Now, this was an amazing event. 5,000 only described the number of men who were fed. There were more when you include the women and the children. We're talking about a, a Lloyd Noble full on bedlam weekend kind of a day. And Jesus fed all of them with just a few fish and loaves. It was a remarkable miracle. And the people were highly impressed How impressed were they? Well, it says when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, this is in verse 14, when they saw the sign that he had done, when they saw that he had fed them, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Hey, God's doing something. That's what they said. But then they continue in this, perceiving then that they were about to come and to take him by force and make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What does it mean that they were going to come by force and make him king? I don't know. But it was not God's plan. But what we see here is kind of the height of Jesus' popularity. He had just done something that everybody liked. They got to eat a meal. And they were happy. And because they were happy, Jesus' popularity was off the charts. I might say it this way. This is D now Jesus. This is Jesus at a Disciple Now weekend where our middle school and high school students have been leaning in towards the person of Christ. He's so attractive this weekend, isn't he? It's encouraging. We're talking about how he loves us, how he cares for us. This is the God loves us. Jesus, this is our baptism day, Jesus, this is church camp, Jesus, this is the the mountaintop high, Jesus. He's at the height of his popularity, and he's at the height of his popularity because he had just given them something to eat. And so, Jesus' disciples and Jesus moved to the other side of the lake. Now, how did Jesus get to the other side of the lake? He walked on water. That's a whole other sermon, but it was really cool. So Jesus ends up with the disciples on the other side of the lake, and the crowd meets him there. And the crowd is like, hey, you got any more of that food? That's kind of a paraphrase, but that's, that's what they were saying. They're like, hey, that was wonderful that you fed us over there. Is this an all-you-can-eat buffet? Can we, can we get another meal from you on, on this side? You know, that food as an attraction is something that is common on the campus of the University of Oklahoma, at least at one time. They had the the only all-you-can-eat Chick-fil-A as a part of the cafeteria in the dorms. So if you were a student at OU, you could get all the Chick-fil-A you wanted with just your meal points. And that was something that attracted people to OU. I don't know if that's still the case, but it was at one time. And I think people are wondering, is the same true of Jesus? Is this an all-you-can-eat buffet? And so they flocked to the other side. And, and Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, not because you really think that, that God is, is in this in a way that is revealing something of his character. But he said, you're here just because you ate your fill. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. He says, Hey, there is something better than filling your bellies. It is filling your souls. Jesus says, I'm not here just to fill your bellies. I'm here to forgive your sins, to reconcile you to God, and to show you the way to true life. That's That's what Jesus is saying here. Well, he goes on and he illuminates this a little more by saying to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus was saying, I will not just fill your bellies, but I will fill your souls. Continues, verse 51. says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, we know that Jesus was saying this because he was referring to the death that he would die on the cross as a sacrifice in his flesh for their forgiveness of sins. But the people heard this and they started squirming in their seat a little bit. Is he really inviting us to eat his flesh? It's a strange thing to say. But Jesus in the context had explained what it meant to, to, to take of the bread of life. It was not to physically eat his flesh, but it was ultimately to believe in him who had sent him. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. This is what it means to eat the bread of life, that you would believe in him who he has sent. Jesus said, you want your souls filled? Then come to me, embrace me, believe me, follow me. And I will fill your souls in a way that nothing else can. And he continues on in verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus makes an allusion to how God had fed the Israelites in the wilderness with manna from heaven. He says they ate and it satisfied their hunger for a short time, but ultimately they ended up dying physically. But Jesus says, if you come and you believe in me, you feed on me, you lean on me, you depend on me, if I am the bread that nourishes your soul, then you will live forever. But despite all of those things that Jesus said in the clarifiers, all they heard was eat my flesh. And so... Many of his disciples, here not talking about the 12, not Peter and the boys, but this is talking about the rest of those who were kind of on the fringes who were following Christ. It says many of his disciples heard it and they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I mean, eat your flesh, drink your blood. What are you talking about, Jesus? They missed that part about belief. They just heard this hard saying. And Verse 66 says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What is this? Well, this was not D-now Jesus. This was not camp Jesus, mountain high Jesus, baptism day Jesus. Not God loves me Jesus. This is the doctrine of the Trinity Jesus. This is the sovereignty of God, Jesus. This is not Jesus on the day that you win the state title and you say, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. But this is saying the same thing on the day that your life falls apart. Not at your best moment, but at your worst. Jesus had said something hard, and some around the perimeter who gathered near him in the times that were good now begin to turn away from him in the times that are hard. Is that your story? It's the story of anyone you know or anyone you love? This story played out in the first century. Not much has changed, right? In human nature, the person of Christ. Well, Jesus then turns to the 12. He turns to Peter, he turns to James and John, he turns to the rest of the disciples who had spent all this time with him, had heard all of his sermons, had seen all of his miracles. He turns to them and says, do you want to go away as well? In other words, the people on the fringes weren't sticking around anymore. Jesus said, are you going to join them? Are you going to leave as well? And in response to that, Peter speaks. Now that's, that's not a shock, right? Of course Peter spoke. You can imagine he looks around at his friends and I got this, you know, kind of steps forward representing the group. Um, But Peter speaks and says something absolutely amazing, something that each of us need to hear and wrestle with today. Peter says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, there is no one like you, Jesus. This may be a hard thing that you've just said, but we know no one who is like you. It would be foolish for us to leave. We're gonna stay right here with you because we believe that you are God. So your words are different and your perspective is right. And so he stays even when it was hard. Peter makes a statement here that we need to to just pause for a moment and let it settle in our souls. Peter says, there is nothing else. To whom shall we go? Nobody has the words of eternal life like you do, Jesus. Can we say the same? See, we, we look for life in a lot of different stores, don't we? We look for life on Facebook. We look for life on Instagram. We look for life on YouTube. We look for life in other religions and world philosophies and entertainment. We look for life in drugs and alcohol. We look for lives in illicit affairs. We look for lives in sexuality beyond the scope of God's provision and direction. See, we look in a lot of different places, don't we? But if we come like Peter to say, Lord, to whom shall we go? I can look a lot of places, but it's a waste of time because what I need is found in your word. They said it to Jesus because he was the living word standing in front of them. But friends, there is nothing that separates the living word Jesus from the written word of God, the scriptures. They're communicating the same message, the same language, because they are both from God himself. I love what Paul says to his friend Timothy, he says to Timothy, he said, Timothy, I know from the time that you were just a little guy, that your mama and your grandma, they read to you the Jesus storybook Bible. No, they, they read to him the Old Testament. They read to him the scriptures. And those scriptures made Timothy wise for salvation. They produced light in his life so that he would know the way to true life. And Paul says, there's nothing like that, Timothy. There's nothing like it. It has made you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. All of the scriptures, like a giant arrow pointing us to faith in Christ. The light producing purpose of the holy scriptures. Not only does he say that, but Paul continues and says that this scripture is so powerful because it came from God. It is God breathed. God spoke it into existence, yes, through human authors, but with divine origin so that you and I might both understand who God is and also the life that he has called us to live. It is profitable, but it's profitable for what? It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that you and I might be equipped for every good work. There is nothing like this book to help us understand truth and life. Psalm 119, 105 would say it this way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and it's a light to my path. The word of God illuminates our way. On our own, we might stumble in the darkness, but in the light of God's word, we might understand right from wrong, good from evil. So, why do we have biblical expository sermons? Now, that's a lot of words, so what do I mean? Well, why do we have biblical sermons? Why is it that we've just spent almost all of our time looking over these few verses in John 6? Why? Why? Why the Bible? And then why do we exposit them? Why do we take time to not just read them, but to try to really understand them, to dive deep and try to make sense of them? And why do we do that in 35 minutes every weekend? Well, friends, we we do that in part because we believe that God's Word is better than ours. Friends, you don't need to show up at 945 to hear me. You don't. My my perspective, my take, my angle, my words, my weird analogies about Gatorade, all of that is, is worth the price of admission, which is nothing. You walked in here free today. But friends, when we open God's word and we read it, oh my word, there's nothing like it. This is the truth. So why do we spend the majority of the time in our messages reading and explaining the Scripture? Because we believe that God's Word is just better. It's what is worth our time. It's what we need. We're not going to go shop at any other stores. We're going to come right here. Second thing, we believe God's Word is meant to be read, studied, believed, and applied. We believe it. God's Word is not just something to pass before our eyes. It's not just something for us to check the box and say we read it. It's something for us to to read, to process, to believe, and then to obey. So we need to slow down long enough to let God's Word kind of marinate in our lives. That's why we spend this time in the Scripture every week. And we believe God's Word lights our path. We believe it lights our path. We believe that we don't just know it all, right? Right? That it's, it's not good enough for us just to trust our heart, to do what feels right. Because on our own, away from the Word of God, we can make some terrible determinations about life. And here's what happens. The person that walks away from God's Word, the person that doesn't read it and, and come back to it again and again, is like a person who is getting increasingly worsening cataracts over their eyes. That one time they could see, But over time, the more time we spend away from God's Word, the darker and dimmer our world becomes until ultimately we end up falling flat on our faces, tripping over an obstacle we otherwise would have seen. So we come back to God's Word regularly, daily, to allow it to pour over us and to transform our minds so that we might understand and discern right from wrong. Friends, where else can we go? where else can we go? The answer is nowhere else. So we come and we open God's Word and we read and study it together. This is the light-producing purpose of the Holy Scripture. But there's a second thing I want us to see, and that's going to take us outside of John 6. We'll we'll touch a little bit in John 6 here, but I want to look at the rest of the the Scripture for a moment and, and think about another important reality that... Honestly, without this second reality, I don't know that I would have the confidence I have when I stand up here and preach. And that is this, the life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit. The life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit. See, I I believe that if you have trusted in Christ, then the Holy Spirit resides in your hearts. And if the Spirit resides in your hearts, you have a, a hope to not just hear these words, but to live them out in your daily lives. And this is such an important thing for us to remember. So let's look at some... New Testament verses that describe this. James chapter 1 verse 22 says this, we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. For our day and age today, we might say it this way, we we are to, to actually believe and do the things we read in scripture, not just hear it. It's not enough for us just to show up on Sunday. We need to embrace God's word and live it out. It's not enough for us just to listen to sermons on our jogs or exercise sessions or commutes to work. It's not just about getting smarter. It's not just about knowing more, but ultimately our lives should be conformed to God's Word. We're not just to be doers of the Word, but So we are not just to hear it, but we are to, to live it out, and that creates a problem. It's a problem that all of us are familiar with. It's the problem that, that, that we experience when we try to obey and live out God's Word. We run into a challenge, and that challenge is us. That challenges our flesh. Paul says this in Romans 7, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Paul says, I will sit in a message and I will say amen when the pastor says it, but it's more difficult for me to walk out the door and live it out. Is it easier to hear it or to do it? Are you with me? Is it easier to hear it or to do it? It's easier to hear it. No question. It's easier to hear it than to do it. And the reason why that is is because it's not just about us hearing it and saying amen. There's something on the inside of us. The Bible calls it our flesh, which is at war with with God's ways and purposes. It has a selfish bent, a sinful bent inside of us. Paul says, I've got this, this flesh that is making it difficult for me to live out God's word. And he's so distraught by it. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he answers his question thanks be to god through jesus christ our lord jesus came and died for our sins to forgive us to, to provide for us no condemnation so that we might be reconciled to god and so that we might be able to live a life following him and yet our flesh remains and so jesus has not just provided no condemnation for us But Jesus has provided his spirit to empower us. It's not an accident that Romans chapter 8 includes the word spirit, references to the Holy Spirit, 20 times in one chapter. After saying, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, who died for our sins so that there's no condemnation before God, and gives his spirit, gives the Holy Spirit to empower us for godly living. This is what Jesus has done for us. John would Jesus would say this in John chapter 6. He says it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So we can have a hope of God's spirit empowering us to live the life that he is calling us to live. So how does he do that? How does the Holy Spirit empower us for godly living? Well, there's a number of things we could say about the Holy Spirit, but this morning in light of the context of why do we have a sermon and those kinds of things, I want to highlight two works of the Holy Spirit. The first work of the Holy Spirit I want to highlight is that the Spirit enlightens the Scripture. The Spirit enlightens the Scripture. The Spirit, when we read the Scripture, works around it and in us to help us see it and understand it better. We can have a hope of understanding the Scripture because we are not studying it on our own, but the Spirit is at work with us and in us and through us as we study it. What an amazing gift. Jesus says this in John chapter 16. In John 16 verse 13, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. This principle is also reflected on by D.L. Moody, who has this wonderful statement, the Bible without the Holy Spirit is like a sundial by moonlight. What a descriptive picture. These are not just words on a page, friend. They are words on a page, but God's Spirit has been placed within us to illuminate it for us so that we might understand it even more. One of the works of the Spirit is that it enlightens the Scripture. I can have a hope as I study it. I can have a hope as I preach it that that we collectively will come to a greater understanding of who God is because of the work of the Spirit around His Word. Second thing, the Spirit empowers life. The Spirit empowers life. When I think of the Holy Spirit and the passages of the New Testament that talk about the Spirit's work in terms of helping us overcome the, the battle of the flesh, I think of Galatians chapter 5. And in Galatians chapter 5 verse 16, it says this, he says, but, but, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. The Spirit is able to empower us to live the life that God has called us to live, to help overcome the counteracting work of the flesh. But a second passage is found a little later on in verse 25 when he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the idea that the Spirit is moving in a direction, always in the direction of obedience, the direction of glorifying the Father and the Son, moving in, the, 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 in, in concert with the Word of God. So how do we put those two together to understand how the Spirit might empower us for life? Well, it's helpful for us to think of it like the experience on a train. In order for a train to go anywhere, it needs a locomotive, something to power it down the tracks. That is what the Holy Spirit does when it says, if we walk by the Spirit, if we live by its powers, the Spirit will help us not gratify the desires of the flesh. But also, when we think of a train, in order for it to get where it's supposed to go, it needs not only an engine, but it needs a track. And so, we see keeping in step with the Spirit, the Spirit is always going to move us down the direction of God's revealed will inside of the Scripture, never going to take us away from that. So, how do we actually have a life that is empowered by the Spirit? Well, it means that we are trusting in God moment by moment that he has power to help us take the right step, living in dependence upon him and then taking steps of obedience consistent with the direction he's called us to in his word. The spirit enlightens the scripture and the spirit empowers life. So when we think of this work of the spirit, how might we apply it even as we listen to a sermon, whether it's here on a Sunday or whether it is as we're on a, a walk and we're listening to a podcast or something like that. How do we apply what we know about the Spirit of God when it comes to our interaction with God's Word? Well, we might think of it in terms of our introduction and our conclusion. At the beginning of a message, there's an introduction. Some comments about Gatorade are happening at the beginning of the message, and as that is happening, at that time, begin listening by asking the Spirit to enlighten the text for you. The Spirit of truth has come, and it has. We say, Holy Spirit, may you help me understand this passage better today. And then, as the message concludes, ask the Spirit to empower you to live according to your conviction. We don't have to just walk out of here alone we walk out of here with the holy spirit inside of us empowering us and guiding us to live the life that we've been called to live see friends this is the life transforming power of the holy spirit the light producing purpose of the holy scripture the life transforming power of the holy spirit because of those two things friends there's nowhere else we can go but into the word of god for our times together Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for just the opportunity to to study this together, to to open your word, to read it. There's nowhere else that we can go. We thank you for how you have provided for us the bread that our souls need. You died for our sins. You've sent your spirit to empower us for godly living. And then you call us to follow you. So Lord Jesus, we wanna follow you now. And as we do so... As we come to take the Lord's Supper, Lord, I pray that that as we, we take of the bread and we eat it, we would do so not just as food for our stomachs, but we would do so believing that you are the one who ultimately satisfies our soul and gives us eternal life. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.